so you've got to have uh, Bitcoiners, Bitcoin natives, uh, building Bitcoin native companies and uh, doing it from the founding moment, being Bitcoin only and putting themselves on the correct trajectory because course correcting after you launch the rocket is extremely difficult. I'm very skeptical that incumbents will be able to build the best Bitcoin products. I think that it will be Bitcoin only challengers like Swan, like Unchained, uh, like Casa, like many others um, that are uh, laser focused on uh, you know, building the Bitcoin future. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Pierre Rochard, VP of Research at Riot Blockchain, and Morgan Rochard, Financial Planner at Origin Wealth Advisors, join us. Hey, Sats fans, welcome back to Swan Signal Live. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. I'm joined today by two legends with the same last name, uh, Pierre and Morgan Rochard, and I'm very excited to dig in. Uh, to some Bitcoin and financial uh, advising uh, and some history and just general chat catch up with uh, with these two great Bitcoiners. But first, I've got to uh, pitch to you the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. All right, this is a conference that Swan is organizing in LA, Santa Monica in particular, November 10th and 11th. Uh, both of our guests today, Pierre and Morgan, will be there, as well as Michael Saylor, which we just announced yesterday. Saylor is flying in from Miami to be with us all week at the conference, uh, doing different kinds of events and meetings and dinners, parties, and of course, to speak on the hard money stage at the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. So the conference is just a number go up. Uh, things are getting really exciting as we continue to plan and really nail down the details. Um, amazing sponsors coming in incredible lineup of speakers and uh, really fun things going on. This is going to bring a lot of energy. We're really dedicating a good portion of this conference to the Bitcoin community and ode to Bitcoin Twitter, if you will. Let's go hang out with all of our friends, do, you know, play the music that we love, uh, comedy, memes, uh, pitch competitions, trivia. Uh, we got a great basketball court with an incredible uh, performers out there. Uh, so we're going to do things a little bit different uh, at this conference and have a little bit of a different feel. It's just for us. Let's celebrate being Bitcoiners at this time in Bitcoin's history, uh, where things are still relatively early, but we see the you know, narrative that we've been talking about playing out for years now and, and beyond uh, you know, Bitcoiners, uh, Austrian economists uh, uh, you know, earlier, calling all of this stuff happening. And eventually uh, it has. And fortunately now we have uh, something to sort of save us, a safety net of sorts, um, from the sort of culmination, I guess, of all of these predictions from Austrian economists. And we have a perfect pair to talk about these ideas with us today in Pierre and Morgan. So let's bring them up here with us today. Hello, how's it going? It's going very well. How are you, Brady? I'm great. Yeah, we're I'm doing excited. Well. Happy How to are be you, here. Morgan? Yeah, Good. doing really well. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Great to have both of you here. Uh, Pierre is now at Riot. Uh, he is a VP of research. And uh, Morgan runs her own business as a personal financial advisor. And so let's actually kick it off with you, Morgan, because uh, this is right up your wheelhouse. Uh, Swan recently, recently launched Swan Advisor Services, which is a platform for financial advisors to manage Bitcoin investments on behalf of their clients. And I know that you 
uh, sort of consulted uh, with Andy and others on the team while this product was being built. So you have kind of a, um, a backstage view into uh, all that process. But um, when it comes to, you know, being a financial advisor and being in the industry, what is the sort of level of understanding of Bitcoin among financial advisors in the industry? And, you know, what kind of impact do you think a product like this might have uh, on Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that in the past, the level of understanding has been very low um, and almost non-existent. I think that as over time, as Bitcoin has continued to persist, as it has gone up and down in value, um, as it has gone up in value consistently over time, despite its pullbacks, that it has become more interesting to advisors for sure. And they feel like they do need to at least be involved enough so that they can field client questions. Um, the most recent switch that we've seen, I guess, um, towards the last bull run was really advisors getting away from Bitcoin, sort of jumping from no coiner to S coiner, I would say is what happened quite a bit. Um, and I think that now that some of that stuff is getting like washed out of the market, um, thankfully, that advisors um, really do now have the opportunity to come back to what's important, which is helping their clients hold sound money. And, uh, you know, we're driving forward ed education for financial advisors with the Bitcoin for Advisors podcast, uh, where Morgan is the, the host and I'm the uh, guest and uh, assistant yeah. to the host. assistant to the host. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you're a Bitcoin family. Uh, both of you are Bitcoiners. What, tell me a little bit about the history Pierre, did you bring Bitcoin to Morgan? Did you bring Austrian economics to Morgan, vice versa? How did uh, your guys' uh, sort of mutual uh, belief in Bitcoin and understanding of Bitcoin come together? I would say Rothbard brought us together, right? That's right. <laughs> the famous Austrian economist, Murray Rothbard. Um, and, and really, I mean, uh, we, we, we have similar... Uh, I guess parenting philosophies with our parents. Our parents are kind of mm -hmm. uh, similar. Uh, and so uh, that's why we get along so well as a couple, I think, uh, uh, on top <laughs> of kind of just the, the politics and uh, the economics angle. Um, I, I think that I, I was more interested in it at first. And then I, I persuaded you or mm -hmm. I, I wore you down depending yeah. on... <laughs> What's perspective, uh, but but now you you're leading the charge. Now I feel like you're. you're I'm on... more interested in Bitcoin than you are. Uh, well, you... I I think that you <laughs> are more effective sometimes at communicating about Bitcoin and uh, with with normies. Ah, well, thank yeah. you. I think I also I have background in doing so, right? Like you and I kind of liked how you described this when we were at Surfing Bitcoin. You were talking about where you typically talk to people in the funnel of getting people from no coiner to becoming Bitcoiner. And you're sort of in the middle of the funnel where you're talking to people who are already pretty interested in it and just need that last push to sort of get over the hump and really truly become a Bitcoiner. Whereas in my practice, I tend to deal with a lot of people who have never heard of it before or have heard of it, but have only heard bad things about it and trying to get them from there to realize that they need this as part of a like an essential portion of their financial plan. So obviously not everyone on the planet is going to follow Pierre into that middle of the funnel. Uh, and, you know, many of us who are creating content sort of for that totally disagree, uh, but go on. level of Bitcoiner, <laughs> right? So, okay, well, that's true. I guess I shouldn't just throw away that premise. But uh, in any case, 
we let's, all get to the middle explain. eventually, right? <laughs> what, yeah. I well, mean, I mean, it's, it's like I, other, I, I but... think everyone's going to get on the Internet. Right. And then eventually one day everyone will no longer use phone numbers, I, I hope, because but, you know, like there's a, a migration where eventually, you know, we're not going to use fiat anymore. And right. uh, that's, you know, the the future I see or the vision I have for Bitcoin. Yeah. So I, the question is, what there's, I think, an important role to play in one, just adoption, just getting people to use Bitcoin. And that's good enough. And that's the way because the people will follow. And that's the way the world is now and the money people are using. And so you're just forced to follow along and become a quote unquote Bitcoiner in the most basic sense of the word. But Pierre, like how important do you think it is for a, like a critical mass and if you had to guess what might that critical mass be of people to like really understand what's happening here, are we at risk of like sort of losing if we don't have a critical mass of true people, uh, true Bitcoiners, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's an interesting question because if we look at the car, for example, not everyone understands how an internal combustion engine works. Um, and so, uh, uh, at a granular level, say, hey, you know, not everyone needs to understand how Bitcoin inputs and outputs work. Um, on the other hand, everyone understands the difference between 85, 90, 95 uh, grade gasoline when they're at the gas station, even though that's a very technical concept, right? That you, and, and that's something that is very error prone. I myself have accidentally filled the wrong tank of gas into my car. And then like, that's, that's a huge problem. So it, here we are in the year 2022, uh, I think we are. Yeah, we're um, and like, that's still a thing. You go to the gas station and you have to choose between four different grades of gasoline or diesel. Um, so I think there's there's parts of, of the Bitcoin system where we're never going to get away from that complexity or like the user unfriendliness of it. Um, and you can see that across different products that, that we use uh, today. Um, so on the other hand, there are other parts where they're going to get increasingly reliable. So hopefully people don't have to perform engine maintenance every time that they want to drive their car. Um, and that's, I think, uh, part of, you know, improving Bitcoin so that uh, you don't have to worry about, is my lightning wallet going to have the right number of channels open or kind of questions like that. Um, but it's, I, I don't think we know yet what the different categories are or what, where things are going to fall exactly on the spectrum of how much do we have to know in order to correctly use the technology versus how much will be abstracted away and hidden by developers innovating. I, yeah, I agree with that. I'm all, I'm just thinking more along the lines of, I mean, that's a really in, like important part of it as well, but more along the lines of like inoculation against ideological warfare, basically like, these ideas that are being thrown around, misinformation at the mass, from massive megaphones, we know what to expect. We're seeing it happen right now. We know the energy flood is going to be a huge part of it with ESG you know, narrative foundation already laid. That'll be easy to leverage, et cetera. But we need people to understand that this stuff is misinformation. And I feel like there is a risk of you know losing or setting back at least Bitcoin adoption significantly if we don't win hearts and minds of a critical mass. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to, to the car analogy, uh, it's actually very apt because I, I think today people have forgotten the value that they get from 
carbon emissions as, as they're called now, you know, so um, there is, I think, a, a continuous risk of people forgetting what the fundamentals of Bitcoin are and then trying out different systems and getting wrecked and then learning the hard way over and over. And so I think the, the value of having people fully understand the system is in, in order to help them avoid learning the hard way. Uh, so it's really about mm -hmm. how do we learn the easy way? Um, and uh, that I, I think is, is, you know, about minimizing waste, literally, because it is wasteful when people learn the hard way. They consume and destroy real capital. Um, and so that's that's where I think that education is important. Um, but everyone's got to learn. They just got to decide whether they do it the easy way or the hard way. Yeah. So, Morgan, you've talked to clients, I assume, about Bitcoin and friends and family outside of, you know, our Bitcoin echo chamber um, <laughs> with this, <laughs> with the benefit of having this sort of knowledge of uh, the Bitcoin echo chamber. So it's kind of a foot on both both sides, uh, which is interesting. So when you're kind of out in the normie world, do you see or run into any like what are the, I guess, the biggest pieces of mis misinformation that seem prevalent that get raised to you and how do you address them? Yeah, I would say the number one detractor for people actually putting this in their portfolio after we discuss, you know, all of kind of the basic, oh, is the government going to ban it? And it's, um, you know, it's only used for drugs, like those sort of easy ones that you can knock out. It's really the volatility that holds people back, I would say. Um, risk tolerance is not something that people can really take lightly. Like it's either something you either have a stomach for it or you don't. And typically people have a stomach for risk when the price is going up. Right. But a lot of people don't have the stomach for risk when the price is going down. And people who have that stomach for risk might think they have it even before they know whether or not they have it because they haven't been through an 80 percent drop in their market portfolio. So I would say that that's something that is it's hard to overcome for sure. Um, and it's hard to overcome even in I think in the Bitcoin world. I mean, it's one of the reasons why people they FOMO in. Right. And then they FUD out. Um, and why we see such volatile movements in Bitcoin is because um, it, uh, I don't think a lot of it does like risk tolerance does decisions about how they're going to hold it and how long and, and where and when and and all those other factors. Um, in my client base, I would say the number one reason why a client either holds a small position or doesn't hold any Bitcoin at all is because of volatility. Okay. Well, that was a nice little tangent, but I want to get back to um, talking just a little bit more about financial advisors. Um, so there's sort of this tried and true framework, I guess, of advice of six, a 60-40 portfolio where you diversify between stocks and bonds. But the last couple of years, we've seen both get slaughtered, obviously, so that kind of balance uh, didn't help too much. So in, in a stagflationary environment, uh, like we find ourselves in today, likely, both of these asset classes fall together. So how can investors diversify in a environment like this? Like, what do you do now? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say for the average investor, it's still like looking at your portfolio as a whole, right? There's going to be some people out there, right? Diehard Bitcoiners who are listening maybe to a show like this, who are happy to be hundred percent in Bitcoin and they have no problem with that. There's going to be other people who, you know, in order to get their feet wet, right? They take a 1% position. Um, and then they can decide whether or not they want to take a 1% position from the stocks bucket, which is typically the, the riskier bucket as we would call it, or from their bonds bucket. Um, I mean, I tend to deal with a younger client base. So we're not really 
mostly not in 60, 40, 40 style portfolios. Um, and if we are in a lot of bonds, we're really trying to match what's called your future liability or future cash flow with your asset of today. So um, it's a concept called asset liability matching, whereby if you know you're going to have a large expense in the next one, three, five years, that you try to match that up with some sort of short-term asset, like a bond, like a like putting cash into a cash savings account and so forth. I wouldn't consider Bitcoin to be a short-term asset, right? We consider it to be long-term savings. So it's not a really a good asset to use for a, a house that you're going to purchase in one year. Or if your child is, you know, turning 18, and you're sending them to college, um, right? You're not going to be able to match that asset with the liability in such a short period of time, right? Because if let's say you bought Bitcoin at $70,000 a coin, and now you're going to go buy your house, right? Theoretically, in this situation, you have, you have, you know, 60% less purchasing power, right? So um, what I would say is that you want to match long-term savings, long-term goals with holding something like Bitcoin or stocks in your portfolio and holding short-term things like cash and also bonds for any short-term goals that you may have. Um, so when you're, when you're thinking about your total asset allocation, you have to um, include your risk tolerance in that. But if you know that something is long-term money, then you're much it's much easier for you to wrap your head around the fact that there's volatility involved. Um, and even in, in any environment, really, whether it's a stagflationary environment or growth environment or whatever it is, that you can take on the appropriate amount of risk given your specific financial situation. So one thing that we've seen over the past, that was a great answer. So one thing we've seen over the past you know, like a couple of months, I guess, um, at Swan as we started executing tax loss harvesting transactions for clients. I was wondering if you might be willing to just describe what that is, what is tax loss harvesting and why it might be particularly useful to Bitcoiners given the nature of the asset. Yeah, sure. So in the standard asset world, tax loss harvesting means that you take a, that you have a paper loss. So let's just say you bought a stock um, and for $2,000 and it went down 50%. And now you have a thousand dollar paper loss that you haven't taken yet. Um, and you have a thousand dollars left of the asset. What you could do is you could sell that asset, realize that thousand dollar loss, and then go invest in something similar side by side with that asset. And now you still maintain exposure to the market in some capacity, but you're no longer holding that asset and you can now use that $1,000 loss against your taxes. You're allowed to deduct up to $3,000 per year um, that you take losses. Um, let's say, for instance, in that example that I just gave, let's say you took a $6,000 loss instead of a $1,000 loss. You would deduct $3,000 on your current tax return, and then you can carry that loss forward to future years. If you had no wow. gains in the next year, you would then use another $3,000 in the next year and deduct that on your tax return, and then that loss would be completely gone. Um, in the Bitcoin world, it's a little bit different. So in the standard asset world, you can do that, and you can sell an asset and invest in something similar. Um, if you wanted to reinvest back into that specific asset, then you have to wait 30 days. So they they're, they are trying to get rid of this rule for Bitcoin, um, whereby you can't just trade in and out. But as of now, because of how they've classified Bitcoin as an asset, you can literally sell it um, and then buy it back one minute later and you can take a tax loss on it. I think that that's probably a loophole that the government gets rid of in the future. But as of now, it's still open. So there's kind of no reason not to take it other than the fact that you incur transaction fees in, in doing so. Fair. Pierre, just in general, abstracting out, like, how are you seeing the development of this Bitcoin-only financial system? And do you think it's important to have Bitcoin-only companies um, alongside like these, you know, legacy companies that will be tacking on 
Bitcoin services. What do you like? What would you say is the purpose or the goal of a Bitcoin only company in terms of influencing the broader financial industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it is I, I think companies have a tremendous amount of path dependency in their founding DNA. And so a company that is founded on one premise is going to have tremendous difficulty in reinventing itself midstream to do something completely different. And so um, there is, uh, you know, on the surface level, people look at uh, dollars and Bitcoin and they reduce it down to a ticker symbol, right? Okay, you got USD here, you got BTC here. If you've got a USD business like a, a bank, Sure. Why, why wouldn't you just have BTC right side by side with USD? Um, the reality is that these are not only completely different technologies, right? when one's proprietary, the other's open source, uh, but they also just have completely different cultures. And so somebody who's got fiat brain and is trying to integrate Bitcoin into their business, they're going to mess it up. Um, <laughs> you, so you've got to have uh, Bitcoiners, Bitcoin natives, uh, building Bitcoin native companies and uh, doing it from the founding moment, being Bitcoin only and putting themselves on the correct trajectory because course correcting after you launch the rocket is extremely difficult. And we've seen way more businesses go out of business than be able to course correct. For example, Blockbuster, they tried to do video streaming, right? How'd that go? Uh, Kodak, they tried to do digital cameras. How'd that go? Um, so uh, it's really important to to get the DNA right from get, um, and we we see that across the the industry um, and also just across the economy. Um, I'm very skeptical that incumbents will be able to build the best Bitcoin products. I think that it will be Bitcoin only challengers like Swan, like Unchained, uh, like Casa, like many others um, that are uh, laser focused on, uh, you know, building the Bitcoin future. I would like to add to that. I love that point. Um, also, that as Bitcoin native companies, that we shouldn't really shun what has what has happened traditionally in the financial system. I feel like we often say, oh, it's not important what's going on in standard financial system because it's, you know, Bitcoin's going to replace everything and therefore everything in the financial system is going to go away. I think that there are a lot of things in the financial system that are going to go away. There's going to be a removal of a lot of the financialization that has happened in our society, which I think is a good thing for everybody. But I think, though, that there are certain aspects of the financial system that are there for a reason and that are not going to go away and that it would actually behoove Bitcoin companies to identify what those are and be able to implement them in the companies um, that they're currently building. That way you're on like really a super trajectory towards what people want and need. Yeah. And discerning between the two is, is that's where all the hard work is. Uh, if it was easy, then, uh, you know, it would be easy and uh, there, there wouldn't be a great opportunity there. Um, but the, the traditional financial system has built up a lot of tacit knowledge and built up kind of um, scar tissue from uh, learning things the hard way. Uh, and so being able to bring that over or, or Bitcoin only companies are going to learn these lessons uh, the hard way all over again as well. So I think that's where in terms of careers, it's a great career opportunity to leave the world of traditional finance and to join a Bitcoin only company. 
so that you can have that Bitcoiner DNA built into the company and also bring in some of the more technical know-how of how do you run a, a financial institution in a, a responsible manner. Yeah, absolutely. Swans re recently brought over two guys from Goldman and a guy from Bridgewater. So it's, it is, uh, it's definitely happening and very high level talent at those legacy institutions are looking to come over to Bitcoin companies. So that's definitely a massive opportunity for Bitcoin companies to hire the best that are out there and poach them from this, <laughs> from this legacy system. I want to dive into over financialization. Uh, Morgan just brought it up and I think both of you would be really good to help teach our audience about the, harms of over-financialization and how it happened. Um, and I don't know if you know some approximate like uh, numbers or whatever to uh, describe the degree to which uh, the economy has been financialized from 1971 to today. Either one of you can, can dive in on that. Uh, we'd love to hear from both of you. I'll start. Sure. Uh, so what's the cause of over-financialization? Uh, it's inflation, really. It's the you cannot hold cash on your balance sheet for the long term if that cash is fiat currency, because the issuers of that fiat currency have a uh, a view, a policy view that uh, they don't want you to hold it because they want to stimulate the economy, quote unquote, uh, or that's what they claim to be kind of their um, benevolent reason for doing this, and so they print lots of money for themselves, by the way, which is interesting. Uh, and that causes uh, inflation, right? And so um, it, it, is, it, it is inadvisable to hold large quantities of fiat currency on your balance sheet. And instead, you have to invest as quickly as possible or spend as quickly as possible. I see it really clearly in what I do for a living. Um, so you can sort of see the evolution of financial advisory firms. It first started as a person who would pick stocks for you. Um, and they would manage a total portfolio for you based on your needs and objectives and so forth um, and pick individual companies that met those needs and objectives of the person. From there, though, right, that's a really time consuming thing that, that for people to do and for individual people to be picking stocks constantly. So then these got packaged up into things like mutual funds and separately managed accounts, for instance. Um, and we're seeing the rise, the meteoric rise, really, of index funds where people literally like they need to move their money out of cash as quickly as possible. And they don't have time to even evaluate a mutual fund manager. And so they're just going to stuff it into an index fund because these mutual fund managers don't even have time to properly evaluate what which company is going to outperform relative to another company in any kind of environment, just given what the government has done with our money. Um, from there, there have been other products that have come out, like structured products and notes come to mind where they're packaging these things that are really risk assets into what's going to be a non-risk asset, quote unquote, because it's a it's a bond. Um, but instead, you've got this bond with caps on either side. So you're capping your downside and capping your upside. And then the financial institution is taking the risks. There's so many aspects of finance that have become more and more financialized as a result of just the government saying, eh, we're going to go off the gold standard um, and eh, we're going to decide, you know, what interest rates really should be. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate, right? Because we're all humans. We all have flaws. We don't really know the future, any of us, really, in any given period of time. And yet we have left so much up to just a small group of people making these decisions um, that have had massive repercussions in the system on a whole. Yeah, and the, I mean, the harms just go out from there. It's hard to really calculate and understand uh, the offshoring of production, all of that, et cetera, because we're essentially have uh, the dollar as our main export at this point. So 
what do you think about talking, you know, speaking of the small number of people who are making these decisions, just a quick take on the CPI print from yesterday and what you think the Fed might do, since that's what we have to do now is predict what the Fed might do. <laughs> that's, all, that's all that's left. Do yeah. Of you, uh, you know, jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. When, when, uh, you know, their, their mandate is really focused around consumer price inflation and full employment. And it seems like, um, right now they're, they're having to choose between the two. That is that, uh, consumer price inflation is out of control. Uh, and they've got to bring that to, in order to bring that back under control, they have to raise interest rates, raising interest rates causes, uh, an economic contraction, unemployment. Uh, and so there's a trade-off between these two in, in their framework. Um, the problem I think that they are encountering is that in order to bring down inflation, they have to raise interest rates to a higher level than inflation so that, um, investing in fixed income securities has a positive real rate of return and that would suck up money out of the system and um, you know bring down consumer price inflation um, the, so when consumer price inflation is 10 percent by their measurement right, uh, then the interest rate would have to be greater than 10 percent uh, so that is problematic because the economy price, uh, the stock market or uh, governments is massively over leveraged. And so uh, any increase in interest rates causes defaults, causes economic distress uh, for a lot of different um, folks throughout the economy. And so uh, they, they have to um, do this high wire act of Okay, do we let inflation get out of control, and then you know people are going to uh, dump the dollar, or do we try to bring inflation under control but risk a deflationary outcome like they had with the 2008 financial crisis and um, kind of just a, a lot of uh, economic damage and high unemployment, and that's that's the Im impossible situation they've placed themselves in. It's also not the first time they've done this. This is like, <laughs> we, we've seen this throughout the history of um, fiat financial systems. And I, I don't even mean like pure fiat since 1971. I, I also under the umbrella of fiat, I would include kind of the paper gold uh, financial systems uh, when they had uh, financial crises because they were using fractional reserve banking. And that is, you know, a long history, both in the US and globally of, causing these booms and busts. Yeah, for sure. I would add to that the other aspect that they're juggling is as the dollar becomes stronger abroad, it makes it much less likely that um, our global trading partners will want to buy things from us. And I think that if they're going to add that to the mix of raising interest rates and seeing a slowdown here and also a slowdown of exports abroad, it's going to be really, really difficult for them. Yeah, so recession incoming. I mean, this, this stuff has... A long, like a lag effect, obviously. So when you raise rates like this and, and aggressively like this, we probably won't see the effects, you know, until nine to 12 months down the road. And so yeah. and next year might be rough. Even by kind of their, their existing um, research, like central bank research, like they say that the effect lag is 18 to 24 months. So, you, um, you know, one and a half to two years. 
And if you look at COVID, for example, that lines up pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that uh, they printed lots of money in March of 2020. And it's only 18 to 24 months where everyone's like finally realizing, oh, here's the actual effects of this policy from two years ago. Now I go to buy right. diapers for our daughter at Costco and they're 33% more expensive. Yeah. And, and they have to react in the short term because of all the political pressure. Uh, and the, the problem is that they now we're going to see the effects of today's policy in 18 to 24 months. And it'll probably be you know, huge, massive economic damage. And then they'll have to print lots of money. And they're on this constant treadmill of trying to respond to the previous problem they created. And it's just swinging harder and harder. It's almost like there's too much like trust inherent in the system or required to run the system. Um, so if we could find a way to trustlessly interact with one another economically, it might help society a lot. Just an idea. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that's potentially promising. <laughs> huh. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, how do you feel as a, a Bitcoiner, as an Austrian economist, um, about how everything playing out? I mean, Austrians have been in, you know, predicting the crack up boom for a long time. Gold bugs have obviously been on board, uh, for similar reasons. And when you're in the midst of it, like right now, you miss you feel like okay this is it this is the one it's happening we felt like it in 2008 i remember uh having the same feeling uh they keep kicking the can down the road but these swings are getting crazier like you were just mentioning so uh, you know i hate to ask the question but like is this or is this decade really the end of this particular fiat era and do you think that bitcoin will have something to do with you know, maybe pushing that to happen a little sooner than it might otherwise. Yeah, I, I think Can I blow up your spot about when you thought hyper Bitcoinization was going to happen. No, you should. You, sh you should. Yeah, okay. Let's I think that's correct. Uh, you should because I was going to yeah. I was going to accuse myself. Of it. Yeah. yeah. 2013, Pierre and I started dating and Pierre thought hyper Bitcoinization was happening when we had that little Cypress bubble at the beginning of uh -huh. 2013 it was right and there was right. like uh the cypress bank hold like people who had their their deposits in the bank took a haircut a small haircut on their holdings basically i mean it's not small it was a good 10 to 15 percent haircut on what they held there um and bitcoin ran up pierre definitely was like it's happening <laughs> Ron Paul. let's go I think one of the problems with these predictions is that we all think, and, and I guess also why I liked um, like Parker Lewis's title to his um, to his series is gradually then suddenly, um, because things that feel like they might be sudden actually are quite gradual. And when it actually is sudden, I think we'll even even Bitcoiners might even be surprised by how sudden it is. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I, over the past decade, uh, one of the most important lessons I've learned is that of humility that I don't know how to time the market. It's a very complex economy. And that's the same problem that central plan that I accuse central planners of having, right? Um, and so uh, it's really hubris for me to think that I'm smarter than central planner. Um, and the, um, but what, what, what we do know is the fundamentals of Bitcoin. And I think that's really what I keep coming back to is that um, even though I don't know what's going to happen with the economy, the value of Bitcoin is the certainty that it has on a systemic level of how does the network function? How does the code work? Um, and that that 
is what I'm using to hedge against the uncertainty of all these centralized systems. And so that's the value of decentralization is to hedge against centralization. And for me to predict what's going to happen to the centralized systems, that is the hubris of a central planner. But to predict what's going to happen with Bitcoin, well, that's just looking at the code, right? That's just doing the math, running the numbers. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's going to be a halving every 210,000 blocks. Uh, it's not, you know, me uh, playing central planner. That's what's baked into the code um, and so forth. Uh, so I, that's where um, we can have uh, the certainty of Bitcoin and then not really have a strong opinion about what's going to happen outside of Bitcoin, because that's exactly why we're interested in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to happen outside of Bitcoin. Yeah, I just want to circle back on the volatility point I made earlier. It's one of these things I do like to discuss with clients is that we actually have a lot of volatility in our day to day lives right now that we don't really see. Right. Because when we think of one dollar going into a bank account and that's still one dollar in that bank account, you don't think of the loss of purchasing power that you've experienced over the last, you know, two, five, eight, 10, 15 years. Um, and so because you can't see it, it doesn't feel volatile and it doesn't feel like something you have to hedge against. But if you do look over at it over a long period of time, then it is something that you want to hedge against. Um, and it just seems to me that given all the uncertainty um, that is out there, why wouldn't you want to have a hedge where you had monetary certainty against the backdrop of all of this monetary uncertainty and all of these, like everything in the financial system that's completely outside of our control? So this is, we're in a bear market, I think. It's confirmed at this point. Uh, you guys have been through several. And I know we have a lot of people listening now and who will listen to this when they download to that, that this is their first bear market. And I'm really proud of the client base at Swan because they've really strong hodlers who have come to understand if they didn't already um, understand the importance of stacking right now. If this is where, you know, your, your stack is going to be made. You're never going to get a better chance to, you know, increase the size of your stack than you are right now. Uh, so what is some advice you might have for Bitcoiners beyond just stack stats uh, in, in a bear market because it's cheap? From your experience, uh, I'll start with you, Morgan. Like, What would you advise uh, some clients to do uh, during a bear market? Maybe if they haven't you know, reached that level of conviction yet, they're feeling a little nervous, it's their first bear market, what would you say? Yeah, so I would want to approach it like we approach any other asset class and where we do rebalancing in the portfolio. So if Bitcoin, like since Bitcoin has dropped, right, maybe you originally took a 5% position or something like that in your portfolio. Now you're looking at a 3 or 2% position, depending on when you got in, right? You would want to try to get back to that 5% position. What I recommend that people do, though, relative to their risk tolerance, and I'm just using that 5% number as a, as a number, right? Maybe you're at 40% or 90% or whatever it is. Um, when you are looking at that though, right, you have to calculate how much it would be to get you back to that level in the portfolio that you that you originally intended to have um, would be the first thing. And then you have to decide whether or not that's an appropriate allocation for you, right? Because I think sometimes we get lost in the numbers. We just think, oh, percentage and it needs to be this specific percentage of our portfolio. But if you are feeling really nervous in a bear market, it actually might be better to look at it in, in dollar values rather than in percentage terms and just committing to a certain dollar amount of rebalancing back and being like, okay, you know, throughout this bear market, I know I'm going to commit a certain dollar amount and I'm going to stick to that dollar amount. And that's how much I'm going to put in. And that'll be my quote unquote cost basis. And I feel comfortable with that value instead of just kind of evaluating it on a like a, 
on more of a rotating percentage basis. How about you, Pierre? Any advice for? Yeah, um, I, I think the something that I've heard folks bring up is that they want to lower their average cost. And so um, I think that's that's a, also a fine way of looking at it. I still think that's a bit of a, uh, a mental um, bias, uh, a cognitive bias uh, of looking at the average cost, because I think it should be looking at how many millions of sats uh, do you mm -hmm. have stacking up. Um, the other thing, though, is that you should expect that in a bear market, you're going to lose interest in Bitcoin. Not that you're going to become bearish on it or that you are going to, uh, you know, repudiate it or rage quit, but just that you're naturally going to be less interested in it than you were in the bull market when you had green candles every day. So um, I think that that's really where there's tremendous value in setting up a recurring buy at Swan, at anywhere else, so that you, even when you do lose interest in it, you're still stacking uh, and putting that on autopilot um, and look like, yeah, go out, go enjoy your hobbies, right? Go do some gardening um, so that you're not thinking about Bitcoin all day. You're staring at a price chart, um, but automate your finances because then in the bull market, if you don't do that, you're going to be kicking yourself in the butt of, oh, I should have been buying when Bitcoin was at $19,000 or whatever. And, uh, you know, having, having regrets. So, I think that setting up a recurring buy during the bear market is critical uh, so that you can come out of the bear market with a much better stack. Yeah, I love that. The last thing I would add would be um, if you haven't already done this, you should do this anyways, but it also helps with bear markets is throwing your coins on cold storage. If they're not um, like in some sort of account um, where you're checking it all the time or if you're like, you know, or if you're just going to look at the price and then you're multiplying out how many coins you have, right? At the very least, if you get them off onto cold storage, you're not putting yourself in a position every time you log in somewhere where you could see how much value you have or have lost over time. Um, so automating as much as you can and then also throwing it in cold storage, which is a good practice anyways. You should be not holding your keys on exchange and so forth. Yeah, because I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, like Bitcoin is long-term savings. So uh, you should not put your long-term savings in a short-term trading account, right? It's just not uh, adapted for that. One other interesting thing I've seen during this bear market is that the institutions, legacy financial institutions, don't seem to be too scared about what's happening with Bitcoin's price right now. And they seem to be making moves to be ready for when price brings attention back to the asset class. And I think we just heard Fidelity, was it? Fidelity is uh, announced something, I can't remember, with the retail brokerage and making Bitcoin accessible uh, to, I don't know, tens of millions of accounts, uh, maybe 30 some, I think, if, if I remember correctly. And then Franklin Templeton as well. Um, have you been watching these moves, Pierre? And, uh, you know, do, do they mean anything beyond, the, you know, more and larger, wider on-ramps to Bitcoin when price uh, brings attention back? Yeah, I mean, first of all, they're they're very late to the party. I mean, Origin Wealth Advisors had Bitcoin as part of their offering a long time ago. So um, clearly, <laughs> uh, Morgan's firm is a leader in the industry and way ahead of the curve. Um, the other point is that they probably started this process during the bull market of, hey, we should uh, do more, you know, with Bitcoin, give more access to Bitcoin. 
Um, and uh, because these firms are so slow, uh, it's, you know, a year or two or three later that they are actually announcing, hey, we've we've finished integrating uh, this. Um, That's a good point. So the third <laughs> is, uh, unlike Origin Wealth Advisors, that uh, we is, turn on a dime. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and the third point is that, um, you know, the reason they didn't pull the plug when they saw the bear market developing is because I think it's widely understood that Bitcoin adoption now happens in waves. And so you have waves of uh, adoption on Bitcoin because humans are social animals, right? We have this herd mentality of everyone tries to buy at the same time. I started my career out at Target. You know, I was on the ground floor of the retail industry at Target. And I thought, you know, I, I remember during my, my training, uh, they were like, hey, this is kind of weird, but uh, people check out in waves. So, <laughs> They come in at a constant rate and then they check out in waves. And so we'll have to call up people to come help out, uh, to, to ring people up. And, and so that's that's why we can't just have a constant number of people at the front, you know. So um, I've seen it for, and that was entirely correct, right? And why do people check out of Target in waves? There's no <laughs> rational reason for them to do it other than they're sheep, right? Uh, so... Uh, they'll see somebody start to check out and they're like, oh, you, they'll check their watch. And they're like, oh, I should as well. And, I feel and, offended. Yeah. Well, it causes, <laughs> it causes the boom and bust cycle of the target. <laughs> Checking out. out. Yeah. But, um, that line's getting long. It's just going to get longer. I better get in there now. Yeah. FOMO <laughs> in. Uh, we're, so yeah, humans are like this and they're like this uh, for everything, uh, including Bitcoin. And so these firms, they their view is that Bitcoin adoption has not reached a ceiling, right? Bitcoin has not reached 100% of the total population of people that would be interested in Bitcoin. Because you might think, okay, well, what's the total population? Let's say, um, you know, in the US, 300 million people, 400 million people. Um, what percentage of them should be using Bitcoin, right? Or what percentage would benefit from using Bitcoin? I'd argue 100%, right? And I think that a lot of um, people who are in the industry um, agree. Uh, and it's only the no-coiners that are like, no, this is a speculative gamble that is only interesting to like a marginal 5% of the population. And so if, if the view is adoption happens in waves and we are very early in the adoption process, then it makes sense to launch a product even if it's the bear market. Even if everyone thinks that you know Bitcoin's over and the fad has passed, um, and so I think that's that's what we're seeing with Fidelity and others as well. I imagine also we'll see similar to Fidelity and Templeton, and after the next wave, eighteen to twenty-four months later, other products being released by large institutions. Yeah. Curious about how you manage your own personal finances. Are you on a SAT standard, or yeah, you guys? Yeah, go let me. That read to you our, our 12 words here so that you can just kind of get a, <laughs> a good look at so we can how we do things the college fund. here <laughs> at the Rochard household. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's really, so I, th I think this is, this is universally true is that rather than buying Bitcoin based on the price chart, you should buy 
and sell Bitcoin based on your personal finances. Mm -hmm. So if if you have um, you know net positive cash flow, and you know that you're going to be able to um, have this capital for the long term, then put it into Bitcoin. If you have short term cash needs because you've got negative cash flow, you got to sell your Bitcoin. Like there's yeah. no or or you know some might argue borrow against it. Uh, lots of different factors in that decision. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what it comes down to. Not is the price going up or down. It's what is your current financial situation? What's your income? What's your balance sheet? Yeah. So I would say like we do, we have financial meetings in our household and I think, and I encourage couples um, in my practice to do that. Um, and typically they have those with us, right. At the financial planning firm that I run. But if you don't work with a planner, you should be running meetings. Um, I would say at least quarterly. Um, that way everyone knows what's coming in, what's going out. Um, if you are living in a world where you take in fiat and your expenses are all in fiat, then yeah, you're, income statement should also be in fiat, right? Because that's, otherwise you're just going to start converting things and it's not really going to make any sense, right? So at the, at the very least, your income statement should be in fiat. Um, your balance sheet, you could decide either way, right? You can run it in fiat. You can also run it um, in SATs. You can have a SAT standard in, the, in that regard. But everyone in the household should be on the same page. If you're single, you should be doing this with yourself. I think it's a lot harder to get motivated to do this with yourself, but it is still important to be looking at your finances on a quarterly basis. Um, and at the very least, right, if you know what's coming in and what's going out on a monthly quarterly annual basis then you're going to be able to stack more sats that's right because you're what's coming in and out and therefore um so i find that to be like really helpful in our household um and then you know it, it'll help you having just sort of the basic knowledge of what's going on with your financial system will help you make all the other decisions around your finances that need to be made for your specific situation and it's can't you can't get started soon enough right because i i mean i did not manage my finances at all basically like i didn't have a budget through college um i was in the peace corps so i didn't really need one and then when i got back same thing and i just i didn't really get serious about managing money until you know i got engaged and my wife worked at a bank branch all through college <laughs> and so fortunately she kicked my uh my butt into gear in that regard and it's it's amazing when you look back at how much money you just threw away just because you didn't take the time to understand like the, what was coming in, what was going out, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, yeah I would also say kind difference. of like the like the fiat system today, right? How where we have money coming in and we either need to spend it immediately or invest it immediately. Right. You kind of have the other impulse now um, in a Bitcoin world where you now have more incentives to work on your personal finance with urgency, right. um, yes. but less urgency to actually spend that money or get it invested, quote unquote, in standard assets rather than just buying something like Bitcoin. So I feel like it's actually now like having Bitcoin has now flipped that more towards the plebs, right? More towards the regular people who just want to do the right thing for their finances. Yeah. And that subtle shift in the incentive layer, like, I mean, at the base of all these, you know, money decisions uh, is can have a big cumulative effect, which we've, I think all discussed in various uh, parts of our Bitcoin journeys, but it's can change society. So this has been great. Let's move over to spaces. And I want to talk about lightning there. And I want to talk about riot and mining as well, which we didn't get to on this portion of the show. And we'll see if anybody else has uh, some questions for us. So I'll let you two hop over there and I'll close this out and be over there in just a moment. Okay, thanks for joining us for 
the video YouTube portion of the show. We're going to head over to Spaces now. If you're watching on YouTube, at Swan Bitcoin is the handle hosting the Twitter space. And we'll have Pierre and Morgan there, and we can talk a little bit more with them in a more of a kind of a Q&A discussion uh, atmosphere. So if you have questions uh, or if you don't yet, you can think of a question, and I'll be over there in just a couple of minutes to uh, ask those questions of, uh, for you to ask those questions of Pierre and Morgan. Again, Pacific Bitcoin. It's going to be a massive event. Uh, Sailor yesterday on a space uh, hosted by uh, Swan and Cafe Bitcoin said that the event looks like it's going to be the event of the year. Uh, so he's really excited about what's shaping up with uh, Pacific Bitcoin. And we are as well. Morgan and Pierre will both be there and speaking amongst uh, 70 or so other uh, Bitcoiners uh, who are many of the, the best in the business, your favorite people to hear from, plus a lot of the plebs who will be in the Swan Dome doing various fun things like we do on Bitcoin Twitter every day. So you'll definitely have to come and check us out. Join us. The environment's going to be amazing. A couple thousand people, big enough for a lot of great crowd energy, but small enough to be able to meet everyone that you really want to meet at the conference. And that's why we all fly out to be in person together is to meet everyone and spend some time in the real world with one another. So come on out, network, meet your friend, your Bitcoin Twitter friends. It's going to be a lot of fun. You will not regret it. Pacificbitcoin.com. You can get 30% off of your tickets with code SWAN, S-W-A-N, code SWAN at pacificbitcoin.com. Grab those 30% off tickets right now. They're only going up. So please grab them now. Come join us for the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I'll see you guys over on Twitter Spaces. Thanks. Appreciate you sticking around. We've got uh, Pierre and Morgan here. I hope you enjoyed listening. I will kick things off with another question, but please do raise your hands. I'll get you up on stage to ask a question. So, Pierre, let's, I'm going to kick it over to you. Um, I was around during the early days of the Lightning Network. It's kind of when I, 2017 when I came in, and I remember posting uh, a using the Lightning Network on the on testnet in like early January 2018 to Twitter when I was still just a, a baby Bitcoiner, and it blew up completely. There were like 1,800 likes. Everybody was retweeting it. All the people I listen to on podcasts and stuff, and it just totally made my day. Um, and it was just amazing to watch it develop from there. You played a big role in Lightning adoption by making it much easier to run a node than it was. And uh, you saw that need early on and put something together that was able to get out quickly and help people quickly. Uh, do you want to just kind of relive that that period of, of, of Lightning Network and why you decided to work on the node launcher? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, if my audio quality is still good, uh, then uh, just let me know if it's not good. Um, so... Uh, I, I had been trying to do a residency at Chain Code Labs. Um, I applied a couple of times. They told me no a couple of times. And uh, third time's the charm, right? The third time was a lightning um, workshop or residency at Chain Code Labs. And I had actually been skeptical of lightning before that. Um, the, when the initial lightning white paper came out in 2014, I thought that it was just too complicated and that um, it, I didn't really see much of a future for it. Um, now, when uh, the opportunity came to, to study lightning at Chain Code Labs, I thought to myself, well, first of all, um, it seems like there's lots of people who disagree with me and they are people that I respect. So 
maybe I'm wrong about lightning. Um, and I started reading the bolts, the uh, lightning specification, and it did start coming together in my mind that uh, it actually, while it was complicated in the internals of it, that it could actually be made rather simple for users and that it would be a network that would scale payments for Bitcoin uh, to uh, you know, be instant and also uh, infinite transactions per second. So once I grokked that, um, I was excited to do my uh, Lightning residency at uh, Chaincode Labs. And what, what you know, they, they, they expect everyone to do a software development project um, at, uh, as part of the residency. And so uh, what I did was a uh, Excel plugin. So Microsoft Excel, for those of you who don't know, it's a spreadsheet software on desktop. And it is very popular with accountants and other business people. And that was my background was accounting. And so I figured if I could build an Excel plugin that would allow people to send and receive lightning payments from within an Excel spreadsheet, that would be really awesome. So I did build that and it was really awesome. The only challenge was actually running the lightning node and the Bitcoin node. So you had to um, go into the command line on Windows PowerShell and figure out your RPC ports and, you know, be able to run uh, commands in there in order to spin up your lightning node, which I thought was a little bit too complicated uh, for a business user who would be in Excel. You know, they, they, they like GUIs and I like as well. I, I actually don't really like going in the command line. I'd rather point and click because I'm a dummy. Um, so that's when I decided to build the node launcher. The node launcher is a cross-platform desktop application that allows you to run a Lightning node and a Bitcoin node. It's written in Python, uh, but it uses a GUI framework called Qt, and it allows you to have your the status of your nodes inside of your system tray. So on Windows, your system tray is the thing that's by the clock on the bottom right, and on Mac OS, the top right. Um, and it just makes it intuitively easier to run your Bitcoin and Lightning nodes. And then you can use any kind of software to connect to those nodes running on your computer, whether it's my Excel plugin or, uh, for example, Joule browser extension or uh, Jack Mahler's is um, uh, uh, not Strike. Oh, wow. Zap uh, desktop app um, to, to connect to that uh, node. So yeah, that was that was the node launcher, um, and that was kind of my my f first foray into uh, Lightning development. Yeah, I used the node launcher to launch my first node, and I thought it was one of those really ingenious, like kind of MVP hacks to get out there quickly and and early, and is what people needed to get started at the right time. So, um, and and looks what it, what it's turned into, you know umbral and the like um so it's really beautiful uh node operating systems are out there now make it really easy to spin one up so i want to talk a, a little bit about riot as well and i heard you talk on preston's show yesterday uh, i listened to you yesterday anyway and you talked about how you don't like the term mining and we'd love to hear more about that uh, or at least maybe just talk here about it for a little bit who for people who didn't hear the Preston episode yet, and I think it's really an interesting topic, uh, and I'd love to 
kind of throw in my two cents as well. Yeah, so the problem with the word mining is that historically people use mining to refer to mineral extraction from the earth. And that is actually very far from what uh, is going on with Bitcoin hashing. I think hashing is probably the only sane term for what it is going on because uh, at, a, at a physical level, that's what is uh, being done is that the, um, these machines are hashing. So the, the, the problem with mining is that, first of all, it's an analogy that dates back to Satoshi's white paper. And the analogy the, of gold mining was used by Satoshi to describe the subsidy and how Bitcoin are added to the ledger. And he meant that it is done in a way that is costly so that there is no seniorage revenue uh, to the issuer. And uh, this is really important. If you're going to build a monetary system that is ethical uh, and that is a sound money, that you can't just have people printing money out of thin air. There has to be a real cost attached to it. And there cannot be a monopoly on the issuance. It has to be competitive. So that's um, what the subsidy mechanism provided. And that's what is analogous to Bitcoin or sorry, to, to gold mining. Everything else about hashing is, um, you know, contrary to that analogy. And so the, the analogy falls apart when you start talking about transaction fees, because while hashing um, is related to transactions and is related to including transactions in blocks, gold mining has nothing to do with gold transactions after the gold has been extracted from the earth, right? So gold miners are not helping people move gold coins from one vault to another. That's a completely different service. That's Brinks and their armored vehicles. Um, likewise, Bitcoin hashing is contributing to creating a order, a sequence of uh, providing a, a sequential ordering to transactions. And so um, that that is what people talk about, you know, the time chain, uh, or as Satoshi put it, the distributed time stamping. And that is also completely unrelated to gold mining, right? Gold mining does not provide a sequence or an ordering of gold transactions um, that actually and the, the reason you need to have the sequencing of transactions is so that you don't accidentally spend the same asset twice. The way that gold solves that is just by being physical, right? So either the gold coin is in your wallet or it's not. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what's going to determine if it's been spent or not. Um, in the fiat electronic system, the double spending problem is solved by centralized clocks. And so the bank is going to decide on the sequencing or the order of the transactions to your checking account to figure out, you know, how much to hit you with uh, overdraft fees. So um, with Bitcoin being a decentralized electronic cash system, you cannot have a centralized clock that would completely defeat the entire purpose of the system. It would make it vulnerable to every kind of attack imaginable. And uh, it would actually it, it would just be completely nonsensical waste of resources. Um, so you have to have a decentralized clock or a decentralized ordering or sequencing of transactions. And that is Satoshi's breakthrough was combining 
proof of work mechanism that dates back to the 90s with a difficulty adjustment that um, is really the novel innovation. And the difficulty adjustment is actually done by the Bitcoin nodes. It's not done by the hashers. And so the, this, the dichotomy between the work being done by hashers and the verification done by nodes is really critical to understanding Bitcoin's functionality and its governance as well. Um, people get into uh, you know, uh, fallacious reasoning by thinking that, oh, Bitcoin miners control the consensus rules of Bitcoin because they don't understand that it's actually Bitcoin nodes that control the consensus rules and they only control it for their own no node operator, right? No, nobody can force other node operators to change their consensus rules. Otherwise, if that were not the case, Bitcoin would not be decentralized. And so it is this idea that as a node operator, you are self-sovereign and every node operator is self-sovereign uh, that, that creates um, Bitcoin's immutability and, and kind of the, the value proposition of it. The word mining is not in the white paper. Do you happen to know when my, the word mining started being used for hashing? Um, okay, I got to fact check you on that because I, I just well, I just did a I just did a control F on the PDF. So, all right, section six, paragraph one: the steady addition of a constant amount of new coins is analogous to gold miners expending resources to add gold to circulation. Uh huh. So, it yeah, it's it's in there. Satoshi wrote it, but um, I think that it has been so severely abused that people have profound misconceptions about uh, what's going on in the quote-unquote Bitcoin mining industry. Yep. There it is. Yeah, I was searching for mining, but that makes sense. Uh, cool. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, too. Uh, there's other words. There's other terms in Bitcoin that can be misleading. I, I, I think a wallet comes to mind. And do you, I, I don't know if wallet has the same kind of consequences in terms of being sort of a misnomer as mining does. Uh, and it doesn't, it do, that word certainly does not help our effort to combat like ESG narratives, et cetera, and misinformation. But it's probably just too far out, like it's out of the, too far out of the barn at this point. You can't go catch it. Mm -hmm. On the wallet side, I would say, Wallet is less of a misnomer as opposed to, let's say, um, like non-custodial versus custodial wallets. I feel like that's where it starts to get confusing. Like, I feel like wallet should be, should just be the term for non-custodial. Wallet is something that you keep, whether you keep it in your pocket or you put it, you know, in some forest and decide to check on it every 10 years, it's up to you, right? Whereas a custodial wallet, as we call it today, is really an account. Um, and people should know the difference between an, an account and money in their wallet. Yeah, that's a very good point. What about you, Pierre? Is there any any other words that you think are problematic? And is it even worth like, are you like gearing up for a to try to push against the word mining like on a broader level, or is this just something you want to talk about now? Or do you think it's important enough to go out and like kind of campaign against trying to get this name, this word changed? Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody who wants to be credible and taken seriously should limit their use of mining to the analogy of the subsidy. That is that the addition of new units to the ledger is costly, like gold mining. 
And that is how Satoshi used the analogy. And I think that that is the correct way to use the analogy. And that when we're talking about um, the uh, hashing, uh, we should talk about hashing because that is what they are doing, SHA-256 squared. And we can discuss kind of the value of that for the network um, and uh, you know how they earn their revenue that is uh, through the subsidy and through the transaction fees. But that, um, you know, I... I, I might say mining, uh, I might use it the wrong way. And I, I hope that um, when I use it the wrong way, I'm providing an opportunity to someone else to correct me. And um, that I, I'm always happy to, to have somebody uh, correct my, my use of terminology. Um, and, you know, if it's appropriate, I will correct other people's use of the terminology because um, ultimately, if we um, always speak in metaphors and in analogies, then people, it's just misleading, right? We're spreading misinformation. Um, on the wallet side, I, I think that it would be great if we talked about signing devices, uh, you know, that you know, our, our, we ca call hardware wallets and that, um, you know, it's, it, it is bad for people to think that their Bitcoin are in their hardware wallet, right? That, because that is incorrect. Their Bitcoin are in the UTXO set that is hopefully in their node or it's in somebody else's node. But I think that um, reinforcing the idea that you should be running your own node because, hey, look, the Bitcoin are in the node uh, is, is, you know, that's, that could also cause problems of people thinking they need to secure their node or whatever. Um, so uh, I, I think that there's just, you know, people have to read um, grokking Bitcoin by Kale and and uh, inventing Bitcoin by Jan and lots of there's lots of great books out there and they they need to constantly be increasing their knowledge of Bitcoin so that they can speak about it and think about it in the correct way so that they can take the correct actions right because at the end of the day that's that's what it matters is that it it doesn't matter uh, uh, you know. I don't care about the aesthetics of the words that we're using. I care about their direct impact on people's behavior. And so if using the word Bitcoin mining causes people to think that there's severe environmental devastation happening from uh, these data centers, uh, then we've got a problem, right? Because now they're going to uh, start militating against uh, uh, data centers and it's just completely irrational uh, policymaking. All right, let's shift topics for just a second. First of all, if anybody out there wants to ask questions, a great chance to come up and ask a question of Pierre. Or just pitch in, chip in uh, if you got something to add or say. Uh, this is a open stage right now. So, so Pierre Nidig recently launched a Lightning Accelerator, and they're gearing it toward individual founders and small teams, developers uh, working on Lightning and Tarot and Covenants, etc. So. What are your what are your thoughts on the, on first of all like more money coming into the space to fund this stuff is great, uh, but how bullish are you on some of the things that they're looking to fund like Tarot and Covenants, Impervious, etc. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am very bullish on uh, Lightning uh, helping scale Bitcoin payments. Uh, I think that ultimately the the, the world we want to live in is one where you can use Bitcoin and it is the best uh, 
not only savings device, but also payments network. And that it is trust minimized and you don't have trusted third parties and that you have excellent uh, privacy and um, all the rest. So that's, that's, I think the, what, what I think is exciting about uh, lightning. Um, I think that with regards to other assets, right, which, uh, we kind of see with tarot is this idea of hey look you could issue assets on this network um i i i don't know uh i don't know how much value that's going to have um i think that uh, asset issuance platforms have come and gone uh, including on top of bitcoin right you had counterparty um and omni and so um you know, plenty of people have tried doing asset issuance on bitcoin before uh, there's also the RGB project. Um, at the end of the day, the asset issuer is generally centralized. And so that raises the question of how much does security actually matter? Um, because uh, having a hyper secure uh, layer for your uh, 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 issued asset um, doesn't really matter all that much if at the end of the day you can reverse any transaction involving your asset, right? So um, ultimately the, the ledger is maintained in a SQL database by the issuer and the public representation of it on some kind of blockchain or uh, secondary layer on top of a blockchain, uh, that's not the canonical source of truth. The source of truth is always going to be the issuer's uh, view of what what the balances are for their asset. Dr. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Did you have a question, comments? The floor is yours. Well, yeah, thanks for pulling me up. I just, uh, uh, it's been fun listening to Pierre. Pierre is just always a, a, a true fountain of knowledge. Uh, just great for the space. So, so thanks for your comments, Pierre. I love it that you're focused on kind of definitions and of, of kind of what we call things, what, what became, what becomes part of the nomenclature and how that can affect people. Um, it's really hard to stop though, right? Once you have a name for something, once you have Bitcoin mining, once you have these other names for things, um, it's hard to stop that, that, uh, kind of runaway train. So I, I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference, but I think it's good to, uh, as far as the educational process goes to get people thinking about, you know, what is mining? Um, how does it differ from traditional mining? Uh, you know, how is it the same? How is it different? Those kind of things. All of these things I think are kind of good indirect marketing for Bitcoin. Uh, so I'm all for it because it keeps the discussion alive. Uh, and it's interesting. So I don't have any question, just comment on that. And, uh, and, and thanks for pulling me up. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. Um, I would just say that we've seen plenty of folks change terminology. So, for example, when I was a kid, we called it global warming. Now everybody calls it climate change. So I think that clearly the terminology can change. And um, it is our responsibility to use words uh, to uh, accurately describe reality um, and, uh, you know, to, to shame those who uh, are lying or uh, misrepresenting or miseducated. So toxic, Pierre. All right, simplest Bitcoin book. What's going on? Hey there, thanks for having me up. Um, can you hear me? I know my reception isn't top notch right now. Yeah, yeah we got you. Okay, sweet. Thank you. This is an, a wonderful conversation. I'm, unfortunately, I only just joined, but 
so I hope my question isn't redundant, but I'm super interested in the whole um, in the whole word uh, choice thing. It's sort of part of my prior life, and I find it very valuable. So my question, Pierre, would what would you suggest calling uh, like I understand wallets signing devices, but miners hashers and mining. Okay, mining hashing, but you know, like in all the literature and everything, it's pretty much miners. So I mean, are you, what is the suggestion there to call a miner a hasher? I'm just I, maybe I missed that. If you don't mind. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm open to ideas. Um, I I think a hasher describes what they are doing. Um, now, why they are doing it, uh, we might call them uh, time stamper, time stamping, um, and uh, you know, with regards to the value that they provide to the network, um, and then. With regards to the subsidy, a miner, I'm happy with that if we're just talking about the subsidy specifically. Um, and and that, that those are kind of the words that I, I think are, are useful. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to interchangeably use hasher and timestamper. Uh, but I think that miner, it, it, miner gets less and less relevant. With every halving, uh, the importance of the subsidy or the mining part of what hashers are doing uh, gets cut in half. And so uh, we're going to continue to, to see that dwindle. And then, um, you know, from a policy perspective, uh, people are going to be scratching their heads of why is Bitcoin getting more and more efficient? Why is Bitcoin consuming less and less electricity with each halving? And, you know, we're, we're going to have to walk them through that conversation. And then also the kind of the concern trolling about, um, Oh, the the transaction fees are too low and all of that. Um, but I, I have a research report coming out with Joe Burnett from um, Blockware uh, uh, next week, so we'll we'll be addressing some of those questions. Thanks so much. That's awesome, and and I really appreciate that. The kind of just we know that the 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 subsidy is getting halved, but that's just so great to think and think of it in that way. Like actually the mining is getting less and less relevant and then there will be no more mining. So we regardless, you know, even mining in the sense of, of the subsidy. So we really do need to change the, <laughs> the terminology at some point. And so it's good to start that conversation. Okay. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I can step down now. Thank you. <clears throat> Sorry. Thanks for your question. NL, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question or comment? Thank you for all the uh, great space. And I just want to bring up uh, something to do with terminology. The While I'm orange-peeling orange many people, like my families, my friends, uh, my, my close friends, I still see, uh, well, many people are saying Bitcoin is too slow to buy a cup of coffee. So I think in terms of terminology, uh, let's say payment and settlement, the difference between these two uh, should be emphasized more and more. Uh, how do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, you, you still can, and I mean, it's very inexpensive currently to send on-chain transactions and so um there's context it's it's I, I think it you know both can be used for payments um both can be used for final settlement i mean lightning has final settlement as well and it is you know instant but 
they they have trade-offs. So um, while excuse me, while on-chain is slower um, than Lightning is, uh, you can send larger amounts, right? Um, and while uh, Lightning is less expensive for small amounts, Lightning is actually more expensive for large amounts. And so you would, you know, there's just trade-offs between these two networks. And um, educating folks about those trade-offs is uh, kind of, you know, we're, we're, we've got a lot of work to do. We also, um, thank you. Here, Pierre's wife. Um, we were at Circum Bitcoin and uh, we went to go pay with Lightning. We had an issue with our, our Lightning wallet. And so we settled on chain. But, right, obviously, if you're settling on chain, it takes longer. So we wanted to go walk away with our plushie for our kids and we couldn't immediately walk away. We had to wait. Well, we, so <laughs> the reason we had to wait and let's, let's put Cash App under fire here. Yeah, okay is that um, I think they're doing transaction batching. And so our transaction did not get broadcasted right away. Yeah, but also it's it's our fault for not having, uh, you know, Bitcoin on our uh, blue wallet or other non-custodial wallet. And we were, yeah, so we're just bad Bitcoiners. We weren't ready to spend their crap. We're hypocritical influencers. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. That, that that might be very helpful for uh, well, the explaining uh, the those two different aspects uh, to people around me. Thanks very much. Thank you for coming up with ask a question. Appreciate it. Anybody else want to take this opportunity to ask a question of Pierre or Morgan, or just come up and contribute to the conversation? Easy to do. Just click that request button at the bottom left of your app. In the meantime, we'll see if there's anybody else who wants to come up. But in the meantime, Pierre and Morgan, I would love to um, hear your thoughts about Pacific Bitcoin. Are you excited about coming out to Santa Monica, November 10th and 11th? Yes, very excited. Yeah, we're bringing our kids. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Um, fun to meet your kiddos. Yeah, excellent lineup. And uh, yeah, we're, we're glad that Swan is organizing this. Uh, we need as many Bitcoin-only conferences as possible. Uh, they're a great place to to network, but also to kind of bring your bit-curious normie friends who uh, maybe haven't drank the Kool-Aid, and this is a great opportunity to surround them with good influences. Definitely. Um, so I'm in the process of writing a Bitcoin personal finance book. Um, I currently have a personal finance book out there, um, but it's not Bitcoin specifically focused. I would love to gather research while I'm there on what topics would be really important for Bitcoiners to have in that book so that the book is written specifically for the audience. So please come and find me while I'm at the conference and give me your two cents because I'm definitely listening. It's very cool. That's awesome to hear. Yes, the conference is going to be great. You should come. Everyone listening should come. PacificBitcoin.com and use code SWAN, S-W-A-N, SWAN, to get 30% off. And that's the cheapest price you're going to get until like from here on out. So I'd lock that in now. Again, Sailor just announced yesterday he's coming to join us and headline the main stage. And this is going to be a smallish conference. If you went to Miami the last couple of years, this is not that. This is a very, very high signal and um, a smaller number of people. It'll still be high energy, but you'll be able to get around and meet everyone you want to and all of the main stage speakers will be floating around the conference, not just, you know, coming in off backstage, et cetera. So 
um, you'll, you very well might get a chance to meet your favorite uh, podcasters and authors, etc. So this is the, the one to attend, and I really hope you all can make it out there. Um, it's shaping up to be great. I'm excited about it. Um, thanks for coming up to the stage, the Village Idiots. Yo, yo, what's up? What's up, what's up? Um, give us something very intelligent <laughs> to, to, uh, to say to That'd be off-brand for me, but I'll do my best. Um, uh, I will be at the conference, so look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, question, Pierre. Um, I listened to your um, uh, interview with Preston today, and you mentioned that you were a CPA maybe in another life. Um, I, I, I'm starting up a couple businesses, but when it comes to payments and accounting for Bitcoin, given you know, that, it's, that we're obviously, at least in the United States, is considered a capital asset. Um, it is there any? How are you guys accounting for this stuff for you know buys and sells and losses and gains? Like, are there any companies or pieces of software that are doing that that are Bitcoin centric, or um, are you guys just kind of manually doing stuff in an Excel spreadsheet? Like, what's the what's the easiest way to do that at the moment? Easiest way to do that at the moment is to uh, spend and replace so that it's a wash and uh, to uh, buy and hold so that you're not uh, having to, um, you know, pay capital gains or losses or take losses, um, you know, with the caveat of the uh, tax loss harvesting uh, that was mentioned earlier. Um, So, yeah, I I haven't heard of any great solutions and... um, it's it's uh unfortunate but i think that what what we need to see have happen is that um bitcoin actually should be tax exempt uh you shouldn't have to pay capital gains or uh take capital losses on on bitcoin um because basically that's just creating a subsidy for centralized uh you know banks and and um uh centralized currencies and so i think that Currencies should uh, be uh, competing on a level playing field so that consumers are free to choose the one that works best for them and that the current situation is putting Bitcoin at a severe disadvantage. And so I I hope that we get legislation passed that um, at the very least creates a de minimis exemption for Bitcoin, but really it it should just be a full exemption uh, so that it really is a level playing field between uh, Bitcoin and, and centralized currencies. The first step, though, is being taken, right? There's that bill with Senator Lummis and Gillibrand where they're trying to get a de minimis $600 to be exempted. Um, am I, I mean, in my view, if that gets passed, that's just a, a foot towards getting more and more de minimis exemptions and so forth until. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, guys. Sorry, I navigated away there for a second. Thanks for the question. Okay. Anybody else want to pop up? Sam Callahan. What's up? Yeah, I got a question. Um, I guess for Morgan, you know, one of the things during the bull market that I found, I don't know, amusing, I guess, was these like TradFi financial advisors that would come into the space and immediately got into Web3 and then push this like diversification across the broader crypto asset class because you know they said we don't know who the winner is and 
it's, it's important to spread out your bets across this brand new asset class. And um, obviously that didn't work out for some of these uh, advisory firms who built their own uh, products that kind of diversified across the space. It's really been crushed. If, instead, if they just held Bitcoin, they would have done better. My question is, have you like listened to maybe some of your colleagues in the advisory space? Like, is that idea kind of gone? Or have they kind of wisened up on the differences between Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies? Or is it still kind of a bottleneck in their understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that that's going to work. I think it's deeply ingrained in financial advisors that we need to diversify. Um, and that's because of the fiat world that we live in, right? Um, and we, so we alluded to this earlier on the podcast that basically we get money that comes in, right? We need to either spend it as quickly as possible or invest it as quickly as possible. And financial advisors are there to help people get their, them invested as quickly as possible because of inflation. Um, and in doing so, right, advisors don't really put their tails on the line by their concentration risk at any one different thing just because. Right, they can risk losing their client if they were to concentrate on it. So diversification from the beginning has always been something that advisors stand. Um, I think there's two reasons, right? One, um, it does preserve clients' wealth over time to diversify, typically. And two, it also helps them keep a job, right? If, you, if you're going to concentrate your clients in one specific bed, right, and it doesn't pass, then maybe they don't want to be your clients. Um, that's a little bit difficult for advisors to stomach. And therefore, diversification makes it an easier, safer bet for them to, A, keep their clients and B, preserve their wealth. Um, so I think when they're looking at the asset class of quote-unquote crypto, they're looking at it as a place where not only do they get to diversify out of bonds, but they can also diversify within crypto and that'll make it safer. Not realizing that the diversification tactic is actually just leaving standard assets like stocks and bonds and going into something like Bitcoin. That's what's going to reduce uncertainty and actually reduce risk in the portfolio rather than reintroducing new risk through diversification. And, I, and unfortunately, I think it's so deeply ingrained in advisor psyches that this is what they're supposed to do that I actually think it's going to take a few cycles to wash that out. Makes sense. Nice. Yeah. All right, amazing. We don't have anybody else that wants to pop up right now and ask a question, then we can wrap things up. And I thank uh, Pierre and Morgan uh, for both your time. And we'll see you guys in a, in a couple of months. Really appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It was fun. See you soon. All right. So that's it for this episode of Swan Signal Live. Thanks for joining. We do it every other Wednesday. Pair up great guests like Pierre and Morgan and uh, talk about Bitcoin and macro and all that stuff. The next episode, two weeks from today, will be a primetime episode starting at 9 p.m. Eastern time with Preston Pish and uh, Andy Edstrom for our Q3 report for this year. So you can tune into that one, uh, swansignalpodcast.com, or just search swansignal for the podcast, uh, and also on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash swansignal. So hopefully we'll see you there. Tune into our morning show on Spaces Cafe Bitcoin. It's uh, it's blowing up. It's a lot of fun. I think uh, Alex Alex is here. Yes, Alex Stanzik, who's uh, up here near the stage, is host of that sort of morning drive time Bitcoin radio show. So check out Cafe Bitcoin in the mornings with Alex and the crew. Lots of fun. Always some uh, some big guests, and we're going to be bringing a lot of specific Bitcoin speakers onto the show over the next couple of months as we head into the conference. 
So we'll see some big names on Cafe Bitcoin. So definitely check it out. All right, that's it for today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks to Pierre and Morgan for joining us. On behalf of the SWAN team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SWAN Signal podcast. It's fun to join us live on YouTube at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, and turn on notifications. And of course, you can also listen to the full show on Twitter spaces at swanbitcoin and participate in the Q&A after the show. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already by searching Swan Signal in your podcast app or visiting swansignalpodcast.com. And do join us at Pacific Bitcoin. It will be worth it. I promise you won't regret it. PacificBitcoin.com. Use code Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, to get 30% off. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at SwanBitcoin.com. The best way to accumulate Bitcoin 24-7.